So, Caitlin, who are we canceling today? How about we cancel Twitter? Long overdue. About damn time. Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic round cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So Caitlin, what what is new and exciting with you? You know, um, last weekend I got to see my kids for the first time in almost two years. And it was just everything that I needed. Um, although I will say that the drive from DC to Maine was absolutely horrific. And oh my God, Maine! That's so far away. Yeah, but honestly, the worst place and uh, like I drove up the entire Eastern Seaboard. The worst place to drive through was Connecticut. Like I cannot get over this. I might actually write about the traffic vortex that is Connecticut because it, huh. it has left it has left me in tatters. I will say. Well, I'm sorry about the terrible traffic, but I am so glad that you got to see your kids thank you what's going on with you well uh the first episode of the big project i've been working on came out recently and actually this day that this this airs the second episode will come out it's called the anti-trans hate machine it's looking at the ins and outs of the anti-trans hate movement and the forces driving it it's obviously quite heavy and my brain has been very bad listening to nonsense from the heritage foundation for a week. Um, but it's been a really big project that I've been putting a lot of work into. And so it's really, um, exciting to see it out in the world. It looks, honestly, it looks really amazing. And, uh, I I haven't listened to it quite yet, but I do have it on my list of things to do. Do, do make sure that you are in a place for, for that because it is a lot. Um, but yeah, um, I think the second episode, the second episode, I think is going to be my favorite. We'll see. I haven't, we haven't finished all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I feel like my brain is goo right now. Um, we have a very exciting show for you all today. <laughs> we do. Um, this episode, we interview the incredible Emily Vanderwerf. And we're going to be talking to her about her article in Vox that's looking at the horrifying fallout over Isabel Fall's short story, I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter. Emily did a really good job with the story. I believe she was the first member of the media to speak to Isabel about what happened. I encourage you all to go check out her story. Talks about how Twitter basically ended this person's life as a trans woman and how that fallout like had a real negative impact on her life. Um, but we'll, we'll get more into that in just a few minutes. And before we get started, just want to let everyone know that while this is a really, really good interview with Emily, it does touch on Isabel having thoughts of self-harm. We don't dwell too much on that, but it does come up and it is a heavy story. So make sure that you are in a place where you're going to be safe to listen to that. We're so lucky today to have Emily Vanderwerf on our show. She's a critic at Vox and the co-creator of the Arden podcast. Um, And she's just also a delightful human being that we're lucky to have on the show and just generally in this world. 
Thank you. Thank you. I am delightful. That's correct. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Can confirm. Um, also, Emily is uh, one of my favorite um, former colleagues at Fox. <laughs> yes. I, I dearly miss being able to slack with you about anything and everything all the time. They still have me on the Slack for some they reason. They do. And so occasionally you'll just yeah. pop in and be like, hey, it's me. And I'll be like, whoa. It's very secret and clandestine. Um, it was funny. Originally, I was just on as a freelancer. So I had very limited access to like the rooms. But I'm slowly getting added to more and more rooms um, in the Slack. So <laughs> I feel like... Yeah. You know, eventually they'll just be like, oh, this is just an employee. <laughs> yeah. Soon you'll have worked your way to Fox Media CEO Jim Bankoff. And then, then what will happen? I'm here for it. Looking forward to that day. Caitlin running the show. <laughs> so we, we asked Emily on because she wrote uh, a really interesting article that we wanted to dive into. Yeah, Emily, uh, for folks who haven't read your piece, can you just kind of give an overview? So the piece is called How Twitter Can Ruin a Life. I preferred How Twitter Can Undo a Life, but was outvoted. Um, but the piece is about a woman named Isabel Fall. She's a trans woman and a science fiction author. And she published a piece in January 2020, on January 1st, 2020, in those halcyon pre-pandemic days. And the name of the story was, I sexually identify as an attack helicopter. It is a story about a woman who has had the military assign her gender as helicopter, um, I'm using she, her pronouns for her because we don't have helicopter pronouns, but like that is the premise of the story. And um, the response to it was very positive at first. People were very much like, this is a story that captures, you know, the weirdness of gender dysphoria, the strangeness of gender identity, the weird ways in which society polices this thing that is at once innate and also a performance and like how hard it is to delineate the, the difference between those two things. And also just like a wonderful meditation on the ways that the military has sort of co-opted um, trans identities. At the time, of course, there was a, a, a trans ban in place on the military uh, from Donald, the Donald Trump administration, which has since been lifted under Joe Biden. But uh, Fall's sort of core idea was like, if you're you know, if your gender identity is part of what's like leading you into this place where you're just wantonly like in a force that's killing people across the globe, like, you know, how do you make peace with that? Anyway, people liked the piece for a while. And then the title of the piece became a point of contention because it is a transphobic meme. It is a joke that transphobes have made online since about 2014, which basically is like, oh, you can just say what your gender is, whatever it is, then whatever you want, then I'm going to say it's attack helicopter. And you can see where that's offensive to many people. Um, so a lot of people became convinced that the story was written by a troll. Things spiraled out of control from there. Um, it became one of those Twitter pylons. And if there's been discussion around the story, and not so much around the story, but around the response to the story, it has been about the choice to frame Twitter as at the center of this. And I want to talk more about why I did that later. But um, certainly part of the reason it spread so far, I would say, and I think everyone would agree with this, is because it got on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Isabel Fall read everything people were saying about her. Um, it's very hard to get exact numbers, but it seems like the number of people who were tweeting about it was in the thousands somewhere. Though the number of people who tweeted about it a lot 
was in the low hundreds. And there's a point at which Isabel goes into the hospital and doesn't see any of it anymore. But she goes to the hospital for suicidal thoughts and thoughts of self-harm. And after she checks out, she's basically like, I'm not going to think about transitioning. I'm done trying to be a woman. I cannot be a woman. um, And the world has rejected me as such. And I'm going to retreat to my masculine identity. And she sort of continues to be in that space. Now, um, this is the first time she's ever spoken to the media about what happened. Um, I, you know, I hope this is not the last time she ever addresses the world as Isabel Fall. But you know, she was very deeply traumatized by this. And I think that she is like wholeheartedly trying to give up on whatever her trans identity might end up being. And um, to me, that's, um, that's a loss. It's really heartbreaking. How long did you work on the story for? So I initially pitched kind of a snap piece last January that was sort of like the working headline for it was um, celebration is not representation. Which is to say that I read this story and was very moved by it. And a trans woman friend of mine who feels like deeply ostracized from society and like shut down by the world and she's trapped in a number of like, she's familial relationships she can't quite escape that are toxic. She has all these other things that are toxic. And she read this story. I passed it along to her right before it was taken down. She read this and was like, it was like the first time she had seen herself in a work of art. Mm -hmm. And so I like went into this controversy with like that chip on my shoulder, to be clear. Like I was like, this is like the first time that my friend who is constantly, constantly just in a really dark place read something where she felt like she saw herself. And, you know, I thought it was a brilliant story. So like I was going to write a piece that basically the argument was... We increasingly think of representation as just sort of um, high-level positive presentation of a marginalized community, like, for instance, trans folks. But in actuality, representation should be about presenting the messiness and the weird stuff and the dark stuff that exists within any human identity. And when we're not doing that, we are just sort of serving the, um, you know, white, cis, male, straight however many other adjectives, um, upper class, mainstream society, which most media is catered to anyway. And so it was basically going to be an argument about that. I kind of shelved it because other stuff happened. A pandemic broke out a few weeks later, but I kept thinking about it and I kept like circling back to it. And my editor and I would talk about it because every few months, reliably, there's a story like this where somebody does a thing and then people within the community are like, you wrote about that thing wrong. And then they have to like grapple with how they feel about that. Weirdly, it seems to happen a lot more in spaces that are around genre fiction, um, whether that's TV, movies, you know, books and YA stuff. And YA, I guess it makes a little more sense because it's about teenagers and we have to like protect the teens. But I was interested in why this was happening so much in sci-fi fantasy and horror and romance also. Um but yeah, it just never quite came together. And then my editor and I were talking about it again earlier this year. And I was like, you know, Isabel Fall has never spoken. I'm just going to see if I can get in touch with her. Because I know, like I knew people who had talked to her. And I emailed her editor, um, Neil Clark, on this story. And he was like, I'll I'll pass this along. She doesn't do media. And I was like, okay, sure. And she wrote me back uh, about 24 hours later and had done like extensive research into me and like everything I like things I had said. And then she was like, "Okay, I'll talk to you. This was February. And we spent several months emailing back and forth. 
And then I started talking to other people who were involved because I, I really had no idea what the piece was going to be because I, I went in thinking it was going to be a version of my original pitch. And after I talked to her, I was like, well, that's just out the window. Like what happened to her is so over the top and so horrible that I want to talk about that. But then it became kind of this question of like, how do you write about this without further perpetuating it? Mm -hmm. And that I don't know if I succeeded at. I don't know if it was my job to succeed at it, but um, it ended up really being a thing that was guided by Isabel's words. I tried to only include elements that she talked about with me. I tried to, for the most part, keep it closely focused on her life and her experience of what happened outside of a section in the middle where I sort of talk about how Twitter is is just like built to make these things happen. And I think I think that ended up being the right choice because it ended up being like a microcosm of the ways these things can go wrong. But certainly like I could have written a piece double the length and it would have been, I think, just as fascinating and just as weird and just as horrifying because there was so much to this story in a way that I think kind of boggles the mind if you don't know anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by that reading your story. I actually missed the helicopter story when it came out and I didn't get to it before it was taken offline. I don't recall if I ever commented on Twitter. I'm sure at some point I made a tweet or something about mm -hmm. it. Uh, I tried to go back and look to see what I said, because I think this is a learning opportunity for a lot of people who use Twitter quite extensively. Um, and I couldn't find anything. Yeah. But there were a lot of people, there are currently a lot of people who sort of led the charge on the criticism mm. of the story at the time, who now that your story is out and people are revisiting this, they're responding. Mm -hmm. we'll, say, we'll be <laughs> diplomatic and say it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions that I had about your story and the decisions that went into it was... Um, it was very much, like you said, focused on Isabel's words. Mm -hmm. And I think you even tweeted about how you had thought about how to incorporate, you know, the critics and what they were saying mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and ultimately, I think you decided not to do that, right? Um, can you talk about that decision-making process? Yeah, I did very little. There's a quote in there from Neon Yang. Um, and... They were one of the few people to speak with me on the record. They issued a short statement, which I used not all of, but a fair amount of. And I, I maybe could have pushed them more. Uh, seeing what has happened to them has made me sort of feel glad that I didn't. But what I'm going to say is, again, I tried to be guided by Isabel's words. And she mentioned three people. She mentioned three people by name. Uh, I went back and checked. I said two on Twitter, but she, she did mention a third. And two of those people, I'm relatively certain, would have outed her. I don't know who Isabel is. I, I want to be clear about that. I have, I have no idea who she is, but the people that she mentioned are so specific and run in such specific circles of sci-fi fandom that I was like, I can't put this together, but somebody over there probably will. So I kept those names out of the piece. And like none of them were the two folks that people sort of coalesced around instantly who were Neon Yang, who again is in the story. And I want to say, I think Neon Yang was pretty instrumental 
in this whole thing back when it happened and said, you know, some things that I think are not great. Um, the other one was N.K. Jemison, mm-hmm. And I have been a little skeptical throughout of N.K. Jemison's prominence in this story. For one thing, she is the most prominent person who tweeted about this. And mm-hmm. she did tweet about it in a way that was sort of like, hmm, that had this tone of like, well, it's good that you pulled it because you were only hurting yourself. And she says in her public apology or her public statement, I should say, that like that was not what she intended. And, you know, we can um, take her at her word or not. Um, she also claims to have reached out to Isabel Fall privately. And I know several people have apologized to Isabel Fall privately, um, both from what I've been told by, by you know, the, the folks on that side and also uh, someone passed along an apology through me. So I know that's been happening. I know that private apologies have been happening. But to return to N.K. Jemison, she, you know, she said stuff that wasn't great and she definitely uh, should have read the story. That was like another part of it where she was like, I haven't read the story and that turned into a thing. But... In the grand scheme of people who were trying to figure out who Isabel Fall was and like hounding her to the place where she was in the hospital, at the point Jemison tweeted, Fall was already in the hospital. Fall, I think, to, to this day has not seen those tweets. Jemison deleted all of them. I don't think it's wrong to criticize N.K. Jemison for what she tweeted or her decisions in that regard. I think it probably contributed to the the hurt that a lot of trans women, creative people who saw this all happen felt. But in terms of like the story I was telling, which was Isabel Fall centric, it just didn't really fit. And like, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out if I should incorporate it, if I could incorporate it, if I, you know, needed to talk to N.K. Jamison and get something from her and all of these things. And I ultimately just sort of decided yeah, you know, someone like Neon Yang was there in the center of it. And Kay Jemison was far enough off to the side that I, I didn't want to include her. I do find it notable that the two people who were initially singled out are both people of color, one of whom is a trans person of color. I found that troubling because the experience of it, according to Isabel Fall, was so much more about cis women saying things that she took to heart and felt, well, I'm never going to fit in as a woman. Mm. You know, that thing that I think a lot of us go through as trans women, um, and I mean trans women more generally, um, not just Caitlin and I, (laughs) that a lot of us go through early in transition where it's like, oh, cis women are going to keep me out of womanhood. I remember when I was about to release my essay where I came out in 2019, I had this like recurring, like nightmare is not the right word because it didn't happen while I was asleep. I had this notion in my head of this group of sort of prominent feminists, many of whom were cis women, like standing at the doorway of womanhood and being like, other trans women are allowed, but not you. Mm. And like, I had that feeling all the time. And I was, you know, about to come out very publicly. And now I realized that I was being sort of silly, but it is so easy to get trapped in that space where you feel like cis women are some sort of arbiter of womanhood because that's how our society is set up to make you think. And I think Isabel Fall got trapped in that. And I think that was why she was so much more hurt by the criticisms of her from cis women. And Neon Yang never came up in our conversations. N.K. Jemison never came up in our conversations, but those are the two sort of people that the folks who want some sort of... mm, Stronger public apology have gone after 
to the greatest degree. There have been some other folks who've gotten roped in, like um, Aaron Dembo, who's a sci-fi writer from Canada, um, and some others. But it really seemed like it was those two at first, and that, I don't know. I think Neon Yang and N.K. Jemisin uh, at least owe, you know, uh, uh, Isabel Fall a private apology, which N.K. Jemisin says she has passed along. And like, I don't think it's wrong to want them to acknowledge their wrongdoing. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know that that like pushing that further is the answer to that. And that's like me as a moralist, not as like a journalist. As a journalist, I don't know if I made the right call. I think I did. It made the piece stronger to mm-hmm. not have a thousand words of like, this person said this, this person said this, which has already been litigated dozens of times and you can find it fairly easily. But yeah, you know, uh, a lot of this happened so long ago that the tweets are gone or it's hard to reconstruct the timeline mm-hmm. or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know if I made the right call, but I made the call that made the most sense for the piece I was writing. I'm wondering, like you talked about how it got cut down a lot where there were things that you really wanted to include that ultimately you didn't or kind of things that you and Isabel talked about that like didn't make it into the piece, but you've like thought a lot about Um, One thing that never even made it into the first draft that I thought was going to be a bigger part of it was Neil Clark's role in this. Um, He's the editor of the story. A lot of people who have criticized, have continued to be critical of the story, are now more critical of Clark and his role in everything and how he should have protected her more and etc. I mean, it makes sense why Clark would be critical of this framing, but Isabel Fall is as well. Isabel Fall, you know, insists to this day that he did everything right. He has shielded her from a lot of stuff. He has sort of acted as a go-between for her and the rest of the community in this past week. He's really like been, you know, as someone who deals with editors a lot, he's been doing his job well, to the best of my knowledge. I think there was originally stuff in there about how when the story's criticisms started, he was like in open heart surgery. And so like he didn't find out about it for a few Mm -hmm. days. And when he came out, he had to deal with all of this stuff when he was at like risk to his health. And like this writer he really liked was like off uh, going off to the hospital herself. And that ended up not being particularly germane to the piece, but it was a thing I had hoped would be in. Mm -hmm. One of the things we cut down quite a bit was I wrote a lot more about Isabel Falls thoughts about American geopolitical hegemony, um, Mm -hmm. the way our military is used around the world, how that intersects with attack helicopter. Like there was about a thousand words of that that just got cut out. And it's like, I would love to have it back in there, like in the perfect world, but it kept interrupting the flow of what we were trying to talk about. You would just suddenly be reading a thousand words about a short story you'd never read. And like it, it kind of just didn't fit. It was really made complicated by the fact that you can access helicopter story, which it's called now, but you either have to go to the internet archive to do that, or uh, you can pay $50 and it's in the Hugo packet if you're a Hugo voter. Um, You have Mm -hmm. to be a member of of Worldcon. It's very complicated and weird, and um, you probably shouldn't unless you're a sci-fi fan. Those are like the two ways you can check it out. And Isabel Fall would kind of rather you didn't, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, I suspect that she will change her mind in time. So I wasn't, like, I didn't even quote from the story. Originally, I was going to try and do that. I I summarized it instead. 
Um, those are the two main things I kind of wanted to include. I mean, I had a bunch of angles I just I just discarded. There was stuff in there about own voices, mm-hmm. storytelling. There was stuff in there about, you know, who gets the right to tell which stories. There was mm-hmm. stuff in there about the reason this sort of pops up most frequently in SFF and YA communities. And like anything that got in the way of telling Isabel's story, I ultimately cut. And, you know, a lot of that stuff I think could fuel an entirely different second piece that I don't feel particularly up to writing right now, but maybe I'll use that reporting someday. But yeah, it it ended up being just like so important to focus on her and what had happened to her as kind of a microcosm of the way these things happen. I was really struck by uh, the similarities between, from what you've written anyway, uh, between Isabel's life when she published that story and my own life the first time I published something online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you knew this, but I never published anything under my dead name. Mm. I was working at a bank um, and I just had feelings that my therapist told me I should put to the page. And somehow I wrote an essay mm. <laughs> that I ended up self-publishing, right? And it didn't go hyper-viral like Isabel's story did. It went sort of medium viral on literalmedium.com. But I remember back in those days, like I got comments from a bunch of really unexpected places about how good it was and how I should keep writing and how I should be paid to write. And I keep thinking about like, what if the response to that first story mm. had been what Isabel experienced? And my circumstances, I think, were generally the same. I was not yet in the process of transitioning. In fact, I wasn't even out to my now ex-wife mm. when I published that story. And I think if I had gotten the same backlash to the very first thing I put out online as Caitlin Burns... I think I would have walked away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is the sort of overriding takeaway that I took with me. This could happen to anybody. Um, but I think that trans women who are super early in transition or maybe even pre-transition are particularly vulnerable to mm-hmm. attacks in various ways. And I think for writers like Isabel this is the way that they are exposed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, apologies for that monologue, no. but it, it is leading to a question, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so our show obviously is about cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So the question that I wanted to ask you is, and I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but what would you call what happened to Isabel a, quote, cancellation Short answer, no. Long answer, yes. We're going to do the short answer first, which is just cancellation has become such a nebulous, like, all-encompassing umbrella term that it has effectively lost all meaning. And the folks behind the podcast You're Wrong About did, like, a show about, like, we still, we already have words for all the things that can happen underneath this. We can talk specifically about what happened to Isabel Fall as an example of transmisogyny. We can talk about it as an example of, you know, a Twitter mob run amok. We can talk about it as a number of things without bringing in the word cancellation. Now, (laughs) the yes part of this answer is, 
we talk about cancellation in terms of the core of it is somebody being driven from public life by uh, criticism on the internet. It happens very rarely. You know, I think like if you were going to look at a powerful figure who has been canceled, canceled, you're kind of left with Harvey Weinstein. And I don't think anybody is sitting here saying Harvey Weinstein should be free. Like that's... (laughs) That's not the case. Folks like Louis C.K., folks like Kevin Spacey, folks like um, uh, Al Franken, etc. They all continue to work. They all continue to have, you know, platforms. And everyone is sort of, I want to say everyone's fine with it because a lot of people aren't, but certainly they have not been stopped in their tracks. When what we call cancel culture becomes a problem is when it is marginalized people policing the boundaries of their own spaces in a way that excludes other marginalized people. And this is particularly Mm. a problem within the trans community in different directions. But in this case, we're talking about um, something that this is another thing I couldn't work into the piece because it was just too fucking in the weeds for my editors. But um, we're talking about the idea of trans misogyny exempt people versus trans misogyny affected people. Trans misogyny <laughs> exempt people is like all cis people, but then also um, trans masculine folks, um, you know, some non-binary folks. Like it, it, there's, it's hard to draw an exact, an exact boundary around it, but it's people who are not being um, policed specifically for their status as trans feminine individuals who often are sort of read as like, and this is not the case, but I'm going to sort of use the reasoning of the folks who, who make these arguments as male interlopers within a space, as attackers within a space, as secretly angry, secretly violent, secretly problematic, secretly, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And Isabel Fall, early in her writing career, early in what would become her aborted transition, was someone who's particularly going to be transmisogyny affected. She didn't hadn't encountered it before. She didn't sort of know what to do with that. Like I remember those days. I had this this Twitter handle, Emily Sandalwood. It's still up, Sandalwood Emily. And if you go back and read my tweets from when I came out in March and April of 2018, I'm just so terrified. I remember starting that account and being like, you know, um, some sort of gossip site like Gawker is going to find this account and be like, who is this mystery trans woman on Twitter? And like, now I know that there's like 5 billion mystery trans women on Twitter. But at the time I was so sure. And like, so I would just kind of lurk and occasionally respond to other trans women I thought were cool and like slowly started to like make friends and, and wrote a newsletter and all these things happen. But I published an article on Vox under the Emily Sandalwood pseudonym a couple months before I came out publicly about the history of the matrix. And I was lucky to be working with the Vox editorial team, who I think is probably the best in the industry at dealing with trans issues. Um, They're mostly, uh, as far as I know, everybody on our editorial team is a cis person. They haven't told me otherwise, but they have dealt with a lot of stories about trans issues. They have a sort of rich ability to have conversations around that. When I was working on this story and was like, we can't put that there because it will increase the sense that Isabel Fall was keeping a secret from somebody or something like that, they would immediately be okay with that. So like, it's a great editorial team. So I had that benefit, but I still... If that story had gone poorly, I was on five or six months of hormones at that point. And like, I had like my brain kind of underneath me, but 
I would have probably freaked out quite a bit. A couple days before that, I had come out to my parents and they had utterly rejected me. Like I was in a very fragile place. That piece came out, people liked it and it was good. But I think all the time about what if I had published a piece saying the matrix is a trans allegory and all the trans people in the world had said, no, it's not. I would have like freaked out. Um, And then I would have been like, they all know I'm dead name. And like my coming out ended up being sort of uniquely charmed in a weird way. Like I haven't had to deal with a lot of that, but I have had to deal with trans misogyny here and there. And like, I don't wish that on anybody. And what happened to Isabel is so horrifying. So she has a quote in the story that has been passed around a lot that is basically like what we call cancel culture is not you know, real, like making fun of public figures is a vital part of freedom. And when we are saying, you know, criticism equals cancellation, that we're totally missing the point. But then she goes on to sort of say, within these smaller insular spaces, within these communities, what we think of as cancellation is a problem. Because in that space, you see someone and you think they're an intruder. I'm kind of paraphrasing her quote here. You think they're an intruder and you take fire at them, but you know they turn out to belong there. They turn out to be you know, um, a member of the place that you are. And then you've grievously wounded them at the very least. So um, it's fascinating talking to Isabel. This is just like a, like a sidebar, but because she uses so many military metaphors. And I'm just like, okay, this is great. Um because I don't know anything about the military um, beyond what I've read in the papers. Um, yeah, so I think what happened to her could be classified as a cancellation, but only in the sense of like, if you don't want to use the harsher words for it. Weirdly, in this case, cancellation becomes like a softer version of what happened. Mm. I think what happened here was an act of violence. And like, we don't want to say, well, this was violence, because that that makes anybody who talked about it online, including people who talked about the story positively, complicit in something. I talked about the story positively. That spread it further to my many followers. That brought more people's attention. One of the things that came up in nearly every interview I did was that there is a particular story published by... Uh, internet gadfly whose name i will not speak that um brought this story so much attention that just a ton of people flooded in and like it didn't matter they all were just criticizing everybody you know they were just being mad at everybody and that's kind of the problem is that we talk about cancellation in a way that covers up the actual violence that is done in these acts, because then we can, mm. we can build an umbrella for um, Al Franken and Isabel Fall. They don't belong under the same umbrella. They did different things. Different things happened to them. There were different consequences. The consequences visited on, on, visited on Isabel Fall are so monstrous and so incomprehensible that you look at like the consequences visited on say Al Franken, and maybe you disagree with them. I, I happen to think whatever you know, he, he deserved to step down. Like it's not even in the same ballpark. He continues to have money. Mm -hmm. He continues to have a platform. He continues to have a life. Isabel fault doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of a murder. And I think, you know, I think that that is, something we need to be more direct in speaking about. I think cancellation and cancel culture. I wrote a piece about this, about what happened to me last year, which I, we don't have to get into in great detail where I called it a phantom. 
it is a thing that exists. And we all sort of were like, yes, there's something upstairs that is like creaking the floorboards and making noises and rattling chains. And yet somebody's right here in the room with you and they're doing violence to you. And yet you're like, there's, there's this ghost upstairs. We have started thinking of cancel culture and of cancellation as forces that just sort of exist like gravity and that exert um, influence on us and exert impact on us. And there's nothing we can do about it. Like we are just bound to the planet by cancel culture. And yet that's not true. One of the things I, I say kind of deep in the piece is that like all of the arguments about what happened to Isabel Fall, because at a certain point, everything twists and people are like, well, it wasn't her fault. She was a trans woman. She was fine. It was the fault of this or it was the fault of this. But all of them totally remove her agency. She just becomes someone who is acted upon, which is another kind of transmisogyny. It is it is just garden variety misogyny. It's just like, well, women don't know what they're doing and we're going to like tell them how they're affected by this. But like in every conversation I had with Isabel, she was so cognizant of like that. She canceled herself. She took the piece down. She requested the piece be taken down and like that. What the people did to her was violent, but she was the one who made that call and that she made the call to title the story that, and she made the call to go along with Neil Clark's notes. And she made all of these calls. And at every, at every turn, people are saying, well, she doesn't know what she's doing. She's, you know, she's not sure. Mm. And it's so it's transmisogynistic, but I think on a global level, it's just misogynistic. Um, and sort of as a final, it's infantilizing too. (laughs) Yeah. Infantilizing sort of, uh, on a, on a final note on this topic, when I started emailing with her, she said, I looked into you. I saw what you've written. I'm sure she was looking to see if I'd said anything critical of the story, which I had just been like, I think this is a good story. And I hope Isabel Fall is safe. Like that's kind of what I said. Weirdly, I got cited on Wikipedia for this. It's just an offhand tweet. Um, but she looked into me and she said, one of the reasons she talked to me in part was because I was critical of the Harper's letter last summer. And I think that will give you a sense of Isabel Fall's position on cancel culture without me having had to give you that entire monologue. Yes. Yeah, there was a line in your piece from her that she basically said, like, shame and laughter, like talking about, quote unquote, cancel culture, like all weapons, it will do the most damage when aimed at the least offended, the isolated, those with no one to stand up for them publicly or privately. And I think that that was like a really thoughtful and profound way to kind of think about the way that some of these conversations and online harassment works, Mm -hmm. right? Like calling people out is a tool that is used, but when it is aimed at those, it's a weapon. And so when you aim it at people who don't have that defense, who don't have community, who don't have support, it is particularly um, destructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, That's a thing that I'm trying to internalize more myself because I have been very much just sort of a knee jerk cancel culture doesn't exist person. And what we call cancel culture could be better splintered off into like several separate terms. Yes, bad things happen to people, but it's not because of some woke mob on the internet. It's because of Twitter. It's because of whatever. But I am trying to learn to better position within myself that there are, you know, under the umbrella of cancel culture, yes, there are multiple things that we call cancellation interchangeably. And there are some of them that are legitimately people have their lives ruined by what happens. And that's what happened to Isabel Fall. 
I don't want to call that cancellation because I think the term has been robbed of all meaning. But if you want to, I'm not going to stop you. Yeah. Oliver and I actually made an episode about this where we had a discussion about is cancel culture real? And I think we sort of arrived at a very similar conclusion, although I love the way that you say, you know, these are other things that have happened for a time Mm -hmm. that we have names for and cancellation sort of whitewashes it away. Mm. Um, uh, I think what I want to get to, what role does Twitter play in all of these things? Because it seems like that's a large proportion of the complaints about quote-unquote cancel culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people, and I've been on the receiving end of this, and I've been on the, you know, pointy stick side where I'm holding the stick, so much of this revolves around Twitter mm-hmm. and what is happening in people's Twitter mentions. What is it about Twitter that lends itself to being an accelerant for all of these things? I say in the piece that like most examples of cancel culture run amok, this is an example of Twitter run amok. And that's not a new framing. Um, when I came up with that, I was like, yeah, this is smart. And then I found like 16 other people <laughs> who've said that. So um, I believe I believe Charlie Warzel, formerly of BuzzFeed, was like the, the kind of the first person to zero in on this argument. So I'm going to give him credit. Um, it was also on the You're Wrong About episode I talked about, which I pointedly didn't listen to until I had locked copy on this because I knew they were going to be talking about similar things. One criticism the story has gotten that I think is fair but also unfair is that I should have called out what happened to Isabel Fall specifically as transmisogyny. And maybe, you know, I had a couple references to transmisogyny in there that got cut mostly for length. Like it wasn't like me whitewashing the story or whatever. But there is a sense, I think, particularly among some cis people, that what happened to Isabel Fall was all Twitter's fault, which is not true. What happened to Isabel Fall was the fault of transmisogyny, was the fault of the ways that we police spaces meant for trans people and meant for women online, sometimes with very good intentions, sometimes with very good reasons, because there are a lot of bad actors online. But occasionally that will hurt somebody and it deeply hurt Isabel Fall. And you can point to five or six other examples. Like if you if we sat here and talked about it, we would come up with several others, small scale, large scale you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, the headline centers the piece on Twitter. I maybe wouldn't have chosen that headline, but I'm not the headline chooser. And the headline they chose made the story huge. Like, it's the biggest thing I've written that isn't about Marvel or Game of Thrones. So, like, that headline obviously, you know, made the story go viral, um, which is great for a 6,000-word story about a woman nobody's ever heard of. But the reason I focused it on Twitter... And the headline especially focused on Twitter is, yes, if transmisogyny didn't exist, this wouldn't have happened. But if Twitter didn't exist, this also wouldn't have happened. And it's a lot easier to get people to like think about the ways they use Twitter than it is to get everyone on the planet to think about like completely eliminating transmisogyny. Like that's a good goal and we should do that. But Twitter is like, I can change the way I use Twitter today. Like that is a thing that is easier to think about, is easier to conceptualize. So I think the the framing I would sort of 
use is this wouldn't have happened without transmisogyny as a guiding force in the universe. This wouldn't have become a thing that sent Isabel fall to the hospital without Twitter. Twitter is like the thing that made this a thing. (laughs) So I talked to a number of people who like think about Twitter professionally because, um, that was always going to be kind of the center of this piece. And the thing about it is because context collapse is so prevalent, you know, I make a tweet about something, especially in a thread, that tweet gets pulled out because I say something in it that feels within the context of the thread makes sense, but out of the context of the thread, it feels, you know, not great or whatever. That gets spread all around. It, the framing gets placed on it. You know, this has happened with me. I've been the main character of the day and a framing was placed on the thing that I did that was not accurate and that like I can sit here until I'm blue in the face and yell that was not accurate. Nobody's going to listen because when you become the main character of the day, you effectively become a fictional person. You effectively become someone that everyone can just like talk about as though you are not real and you don't exist on the same exist plane of existence as them. And like then your motivations are suspect. And like, that's true for women in general, but it's especially true for trans women and then trans people in general. And like, I think that that sort of um, fictionalizing of a real person is a thing that Twitter makes easy because Twitter alone, not alone among social media networks, but particularly effectively among social media networks has created a sort of economy of attention that is weighted toward incendiary takes and Mm. there's little room for nuance these are all things by the way if you've used twitter these are all things i'm saying there you know they're true like you if you're not Mm going to sit here and be like oh of course this is very new information (laughs) but like people have treated this section of the piece as though it and like i think it's just because i just like sit there and lay it out like somebody says a thing it gets spread to somebody who has a large following. They either retweet it uncritically or they retweet it with like a quote tweet. That's like, this is bad and it should be stopped. And then it like kind of spirals and spirals and spirals. Like we talked about NK Jemison earlier and I don't, again, I don't think she was as big a part of this as many people do, but I do think that she, as a cis woman looked at and amplified takes that were critical of the story and said, this story caused harm Because the trans people who were critical of the story, and I think being critical of a story is fine. I would not have a job if it wasn't like, like being critical is good. But what happened was a lot of, you know, well-meaning cis people who just want to help trans people who are good allies looked at this, amplified the takes that were the most incendiary, the most divisive that blew up. It blew up and blew up and blew up. And you go from trans people having a discussion about this story to, some trans people have criticisms of this story too. Trans people are saying this is actively making their lives worse. And like mm. that, that conversation happened, but it happened because the story that the conversation kept being elevated up the ladder to people who had less skin in the game. Mm. And like, I recognize within myself that I have done this. Everybody has done this. You have taken a look at a conversation happening within a marginalized group that you are not a part of. And you have been like, well, the people who are being critical are probably right. Right. Because stuff is bad out there. The world is bad. And like, so you probably amplify that. And like, you know, one retweet, one quote tweet that's like attention must be paid. is probably like, within your own moral compass is probably not that bad, but within the tsunami that results 
can be just incredibly, incredibly hurtful. And like, as a result of working on this story, I've tried to do that less. I took Twitter off my phone. I've tried to be less indebted to Twitter. Since what happened to me, I basically just use Twitter for, for shit posting, um, which is maybe not a thing that like a person who has a major media position should do, but I think that's a great use of Twitter. <laughs> um, I think Twitter incentivizes people to be incendiary. Like, um, it absolutely does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I tell this story sometimes. I don't think I've told it on this show, but in my earlier Twitter days, when my account was much, much smaller, like 1,000, 2,000 followers, um, I basically didn't have a career at that point. I got followers by being performatively angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a lot of cases I was genuinely angry, but like, there's something about marginalized people who put on a certain performance for Twitter that rewards them with more followers. And I don't think it's necessarily a healthy dynamic. Uh, I've noticed the periods of time when I get bunches of new followers is when I'm criticizing something. Mm-hmm. It's not when I've written something that's really good that I'm proud of that I spent weeks on that nobody ended up reading. It's not me making jokes, which is how I spend most of my time online. It's me yelling about something. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a bunch of followers this week because I you know, took screenshots out of a USA Today story about the Alliance defending freedom and pointed out how ridiculous it was and how, you know, trans people were kind of Cassandra with it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like how Twitter accounts grow. And it's really frustrating. Uh, I've made this joke a lot, but it's like, I could be, you know, going to the bathroom with my phone and I could fire off a tweet uh, about something and it gets significantly more, exposure on Twitter Mm -hmm. than like a 5,000 word essay that I wrote for Vox that I spent weeks on or months on or even years on. And I don't know how to change it. (laughs) Is it changeable? Like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this and whether or not it's changeable. I have um, gained about 2,000 followers from this story. I just checked on Twitter. I've gained about 2,000 followers. It's the most I've ever gained from a story. And like, Last summer, I was publicly critical of the Harper's letter and one of my then co-workers who had signed it. And um, it became a thing. It became international news. Many people on Twitter jumped in and were sending me death threats and were sending me all these things. And like, I had to totally leave the online world for a couple weeks. And like, I gained 12,000 followers at that time, you know? I mean, like... The incentivization is to me mm-hmm. posting more and more incendiary things, even if I get, you know, death threats from it. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I Working on this story has made me care much less about what Twitter thinks of me. Working on this story has made me be like, the second I'm not a writer, I can probably just stop using Twitter. But uh, unfortunately for me, I'm never going to have enough money to retire. So I'm just going to have to be a writer forever. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I think a lot about during the Roman Empire, there's this uh, invasion of what is now Great Britain. And there's this woman named Boudica, who I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly. And she 
burns a whole bunch of stuff down. Like, I mean, obviously it wasn't her personally. It was like forces that are like, like listening to her and like a whole bunch of stuff gets burned down and archeologists see this, this layer within the ground and they call it the Boudican destruction horizon. It's like, here's a place where everything was destroyed. I occasionally have to go searching from through old tweets to find something I want to retweet or amplify. And I'll inevitably come to July 7th through like July 14th, 2020 and i'll just see this stream of tweets very angry tweets at me that are still online and are still available and i look at it and i'm just taken right back there i have a destruction horizon isabel fall has a destruction horizon caitlin you have a destruction horizon like anybody who's been through this has this thing and we continue to say well that's just how twitter works and yes individually the three of us other folks who are on Twitter, other folks who are doing, you know, we can all say, I'm going to resolve to use this better. But the very platform we're using is saying, no, you're not. We're going to make sure you never resolve to use this better. I spent a lot of time last summer during the argument over defund the police, uh, abolish the police. I spent a lot of time amplifying takes from activists who were like, we need justice for George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or any number of other folks, because yes, we need justice for them. But a different person, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name. She's a, a black prison abolitionist, very much like thinks about these things in a much more interconnected sense than I was capable of at the time. It was like, when you were saying justice for George Floyd, what kind of justice do you want meted out? You know, Twitter doesn't want you to ask that question. Twitter does not want you to ask, what is the contradiction between defund the police and justice for George Floyd? Because there's a contradiction there that it doesn't want you looking at. And like, you can resolve that contradiction. You can say, well, this is what justice mm -hmm. looks like in a world where the police are not as, as hyper-powered as they are within American society right now. But Twitter doesn't want you asking that. It wants you flirting constantly with becoming the main character or turning someone else into the main character. There was an incident that happened earlier this year where this random woman was just having a conversation with friends and she was like, I don't think Alien is a horror movie because Alien takes place in space and horror movies can't take place in space. This is, by any estimation, a, re a totally fine opinion to have. I disagree with it. I disagree with it strongly, but I don't care. It's her opinion. She can hold it. She became the main character. Shh. Everyone was like, yeah, we're that. mad about this. We're mad at you. And like it, like her life was horrible for several days. And we can say until we're blue in the face that this is our responsibility and we should be better about how we use Twitter. And I believe that's all true. But I also think it keeps happening because this is a piece of software that wants it to keep happening. And like at a certain yeah. point, we need to examine that as much as we need to examine like the way that Facebook is complicit in genocide. Like... There's this yeah. study that came out uh, about a week ago that was basically like the way social media has warped our brains is comparable in terms of an existential threat to humanity to climate change. I don't know if I go that far, but I think we are reaching a point where we're like, we are not built to take in this much information and to know this much about this yeah. many people. And it's, it's, we really need to think about how we're going to handle that. I've switched most of my socializing to private slacks discords places where it's only friends i know and only people i'm close to and it's made my life so much better but i did that because last summer i got harassed on twitter endlessly yeah. and like i don't know but also the internet doesn't want you doing that the internet wants you out there in public where you can like see hyper targeted ads so 
I think, you know, yes, personal responsibility is important, but as with every debate that we have in American culture right now, personal responsibility is a cudgel that is used to keep you from looking at the broken systems that are propagated by capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that don't want you to think about how the system is broken. Yeah. That is such a perfect way to put it. Like I've been thinking, okay, Twitter is broken and social media is broken, but it's kind of, it's like very similar to like environmentalism, right? Like individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's great, whatever. But like, unless you actually get rid of these corporations causing so much pollution and wreaking havoc on the environment, you don't fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Like we, we can do things individually and vow not to contribute to more harm, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to significantly impact the problem. Right. I mean, like my wife and I have done everything we can to minimize our contribution to carbon emissions, but like the 20, the, the, tw- there are 20 companies that are contributing the most carbon emissions. And if we sliced all of them to zero today, it would take care of most of it. And like, yeah, yeah we don't want to think about that. We only want to think about what we yeah. have control over, but what we have control over is so small on a planet with 8 billion people. I have so many thoughts. Oh my God. Um, I was thinking about what you said earlier about how outsiders will take something that they see on Twitter of a discussion happening within a marginalized group and turn it into, well, trans people are saying this. Mm -hmm. And there's an example of it that I experienced with your Harper's Letter Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Um, because I was also working at Vox and, uh, you know, we were the, the two white trans ladies at Vox. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to go one place, uh, in a discussion without getting grouped together. Although I will say I didn't experience hardly any of, of what you did, which I think everybody would agree is probably a good thing. Um, but one thing that I found interesting is, uh, you mentioned you were critical of one of our, uh, mutual coworkers, at the time, um, I actually got an apology from that coworker, mm-hmm. and uh, the implication was that I had been critical of him on Twitter, and I actually had never mentioned him once yeah. mm-hmm. online. And and most of my comments were responding to the response to the response, you mm-hmm. know, the cycle of of, of responses and whatnot. Um, my what I'd used Twitter for at the time was to explain to people who didn't understand why trans people were upset by the letter, why trans people were upset by the letter. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't come out and and criticize, you know, anybody at Vox. I, you know, I just said, this is a letter full of really horrible people who've, you know, sometimes personally done really horrible things to me. Um, And that's all I said. Mm -hmm. But because of all the attention that your situation got, people assumed that I was like going hard at my coworker and I never. Yeah. You were not did anything. And I, and I actually told him that when I wrote, wrote him back, I was like, look, I had never mentioned you. Like I, I actually could care less that you mm-hmm. signed this because I'm my own person. Right. And I'm not Emily. I support everything Emily is saying, but I just have a different take and that's okay. Yeah. But people that gets lost when it's a marginalized mm-hmm. community that discussion is happening with. Yeah. And I always, when I think back on that time in my life, I always think, well, what could I have done different? And, um, I, there's a section of the letter that got quoted endlessly. The letter I posted that got quoted endlessly to be like, I am in favor of safe spaces. And like, 
It wasn't what I meant, but I should have thought more about the way that like conversation around safe spaces has been politicized and weaponized. And I probably should have changed that wording to make it more accurate. I don't think it would have stopped anything. I've gotten to a place where I'm like, the act of criticism was enough to make people upset. And they chose a convenient nugget from within the piece to paint me as like a weird baby who doesn't know what she's talking about and doesn't have nuanced thoughts on like any of this, which if you've just listened to me, I have too many thoughts about everything. Um, (laughs) And like, I don't honestly, 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 I don't care that he signed that letter either. I think it, you know, if he wanted to, that's great for him. I think also like I get to say what I feel, you know, <laughs> like, and I, that's Absolutely. like the whole thing here. And yet, yeah. and yet it is fascinating to me the way that trans people get lumped together within all of this. There was a, a controversy around uh Substack earlier this year. Mm-hmm. We had an episode with, with Jude Doyle. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I, yeah. I, I listened to this. I listened to this show. Um, and Jude Doyle, like, like very publicly was like, oh, you know, this is a thing. And I was like, I said, I was like, you know what? I think I agree. And I'm going to probably take my business elsewhere. That's all I said. And I still... Uh, like Glenn Greenwald wrote a thing about how I wasn't queer enough. And like, that was disgusting. And like, because I did this thing last summer, I was a convenient target and it, I don't know what to do with that. What's interesting about this is that a lot of these conversations are happening on the left where even at the center left, there is a better understanding of the structural problems that are in place that cause a lot of the problems throughout society, whether, you know, it's, 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 um, racial injustice or, uh, gender pay gaps or the LGBTQ oppression or capitalism run amok or whatever, like across the left, we have a broad understanding that it's the systems and structures of the world that make it so it sort of doesn't matter in which direction we exercise our personal responsibility because we are trapped by things that don't care. And yet when it comes to this, we are so tempted to say that we can do something to make a difference. Like, um, I can sit here and think, well, if I changed those few words in that letter, none of this would have happened. That's not true. The system is incentivized to punish me for saying that. I can sit here and say, well, if I hadn't tweeted a thing at some person before, I can't think of an example, but I know I've done it, that it might have stopped everything because they wouldn't have seen my one extra tweet, you know? Like, I just, I don't know how we are able to talk about these issues without talking about the ways in which they are incentivized and created by the companies that profit from them. And like, you can talk about that from any point of view that you want, Mm. but for all that conservatives uh, frequently complain about online expression and online um, discussion uh, and, you know, p- platforms should police what's set on them. They just want to make the system more draconian. They just want to make the system more powerful. It's nobody cares about personal responsibility in this because everybody knows personal responsibility doesn't matter. Yes, it's good for you to think about what you tweet. And yes, it's good for you to think about what you're doing. But like the thing doesn't care. The thing is a monster and it's going to eat you alive. So I, I'm like really grappling with like, I agree with that. And I also uh, on like a systemic level, I agree with that. And at the same time, I feel like when it comes to 
the harm we do to and within community, we also like can't kind of wash our hands of it when we contribute to that no, harm. Not. And so kind yeah. of like, and like, I, I think that I am understating the degree to which, for instance, people who were very harsh toward Isabel Fall should apologize, but to her. And then I think it is worth saying on, you know, Twitter, the platform where it happened, I was in the wrong mm-hmm. I did this so that people who were who were incidentally harmed by the shrapnel that flew off from that. Now I'm using military metaphors <laughs> so that people who were incidentally harmed by the shrapnel will also be like, OK, there is an apology here. I don't have to accept it. I don't have to take it. But I do think an offshoot of cancel culture discussion is we have entered an era where people think of apologies in a very cynical way. There is a sense that you are only bullied into apology. You're only pushed into apology. A few weeks ago, um, the movie In the Heights came out, and there was a large discussion around, you know, colorism within the casting, because the casting is mostly light-skinned Latino people. And um, the creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, was on Twitter, and he made this, like, what I felt was a very heartfelt apology. And the I, I'm saying that because I have talked to him a few times. I, you know, I, I've met him. So like, I know, like I'm reading what I've talked to him about in private onto his public statement. I don't know for sure, but like the people who are affected can choose to be skeptical of that apology. Don't have to accept that apology. But so many people who have no skin in the game were just like, he just said that because they made him say that from what I know of him, he was probably very hurt by that conversation was like, I need to do better. And like, why are we being cynical about that? Why are we being cynical about somebody whose apology doesn't affect us saying, I'm going to apologize? I think that the apologies people have offered up publicly in the Isabel Fall situation have been severely lacking. And I feel like I can say that as a trans woman who has been, was, you know, also like, oh my God, this was horrible. But I think there is a certain cynicism around apology that cancel culture conversation has driven that is probably not great. I think in some ways, even if you are driven to it grudgingly, the act of apology makes you think about your wrongdoing. And that can take years to fully process. Like, I think we all know how long it can take to fully process when you've hurt somebody. But that's the first step. So for as cynical and (laughs) and empty and unmotivated as I find these apologies to Isabel Fall, they're at least being made. And like that is the first step on what is hopefully a long journey. And I hope that we are able, if nothing else, we are able to learn from this that healing takes a while. Yeah, this is how how are you doing with, I don't know, I feel like working on a story like this is really emotionally a lot. It has been a hard week. And like I, the response to me has been positive. The criticisms I've gotten are all criticisms where I like, I see where they're coming from, which is all you can ask for, where I'm like, you know what? I disagree, but I see where you're coming from and I get it. And it's just when your Twitter is just, even with people who are being positive and even with people who are sharing your story, so it gets read very widely, uh, it's, it's unusable (laughs) (laughs) and it becomes, it becomes stressful. I took Twitter off my phone working on this story because I realized how much time I was wasting on it and how it was warping the way I thought about the world. 
But I, this week, every morning when I woke up, I had to open a browser tab and search Twitter for at EmilyVDW. That's my handle, by the way. Follow me, at EmilyVDW. Um, and like, see what people were saying. And it was always very nice stuff, but I just was like, I need to keep an eye on this. Um, I was keeping an eye on just the words Isabel Fall all week, because if things started to get nasty, I wanted to, you know, know that was happening. And like... Yeah, there's been nastiness, especially directed at her critics. And uh, I think the impulse to be mad at them is very understandable. I think the, the the sort of rolling ball of anger that started taking off feels sort of antithetical to like, not only like my story, but also the way that Isabel talks throughout it about how she hopes that more hurt isn't caused. Um, and that was a, that was a big theme in our conversations that I, I sort of forgot to mention is how much she wants like people to heal, <laughs> but also healing only happens when you are allowed to treat the wound. And this is part of treating the wound is making clear what happened. And, um, the next step is, you know, acknowledging and the next step after that is bandaging and, you know, I don't know if acknowledging the wound is the thing that happens. My metaphor kind of ran out of gas there, but like, I do think, I do think, yes, this is a first step in healing, but healing also requires people who have been wronged to reach a point where they're like, I'm still angry and I'm still sad and I'm still mad, but I'm not going to spread that further. And that's the hardest part. And that's the part Twitter capitalizes on to bring it full circle. Um, what you were just saying, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if or how like Isabel can can heal, but I really hope she does. I really hope we're able to read more of her work. Me too. I think she's a brilliant author. I hope that she writes many more things. I can't wait to read them. Have you heard from from Isabel since the story came out? Yeah, I've been in conversation with her mostly because it's not healthy for her to look at Twitter. So she uh, will occasionally ask me if, if how it's going and I'll just be like, it's, you know, it's going fine. Um, I think she has folks who are monitoring Twitter for her a little more closely, but, um, but yeah, we've emailed a couple times since the story went up. Um, she seems, uh, I do think that the process of doing this has been a thing that she has appreciated. I'm not going to speak for her, but there has been a peacefulness in our most recent correspondences that was not present when we started. So that is, I think that's a perfect place to call it for this one. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this stuff with us. You're welcome. Um, I should note that Isabel Fall has made a sort of public statement through Clark's world, which is saying that if you want to support her, uh, donate money to the trans lifeline. So I'll just pass that along. For our out-of-context cancellations, um, in a very timely move, one of our listeners asked us to cancel Twitter. I think we just think, did it. I think that was the whole episode. We, like, really took that one to heart. Yeah. So does that turn it into an in-context cancellation? Like, through the transitive properties of the cancel daddy? Caitlin, my brain hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you broke you broke the cancel daddy. Oh no. <laughs> Another listener of ours uh wants to uh cancel the Supreme Court of the United States, which you know, I'm down with it. Yeah, yeah, we can we can cancel SCOTUS. They've had some some pretty dumpster fire opinions uh coming out. So let's let's cancel them. Boom. Done. Um 
Let's see. We also, someone wanted us to cancel the existential dread that comes with a change in climate and no systematic action. Um, And I've been seeing that viral picture of the ocean on fire going Mm -hmm. around in the Gulf of Mexico that's filling me with a lot of dread. So I'm down with canceling that dread. And it's like every day we have a new picture of some new horrifying thing. Like the, the cable car wire that was literally melted in portland oregon because they'd never had a day that hot and like the engineers never thought that that city would get that hot last week um just every day there's a new climate related horror um but i I do find it kind of interesting that this person wants to cancel the existential dread that comes along with all of this and not actually cancel climate change well, um, so so we should actually cancel climate change as well. We should. But now I'm going to have dread about this. So it comes full circle. I mean, here, 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 here's the reality. The cancel daddy is powerful, but not powerful enough to cancel climate change, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but but the what I can what we can cancel around climate change, we cancel. You know, I bet if we just recycled some cans, we could get the ocean to stop being on fire. That's how it works. Yes, let's do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, someone wanted us to cancel the way women's jeans are sized, which it's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Like, what? Yeah. I'm never the same size mm-hmm. ever. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to wear women's jeans anymore, but I can't figure out how clothing works. <laughs> and I just, I don't know what size I am because I, I'm like, there's like oh, seven gosh. different sizes that fit me and I don't understand it. It's just such nonsense. It's uh, interesting um, having this discussion as a trans woman because... <laughs> Uh, before my transition, when I was buying men's jeans, I would just walk up and get, you know, my waist and inseam and be on my way and it fit perfectly and it didn't matter the brand. But now it's just like, uh, horrifying mystery going jean shopping. And I don't even know what jeans are in style. Like apparently we're wearing new different jeans now, uh, since the pandemic, I don't know anything about that. I just know that I don't fit in my jeans anymore, so it doesn't matter. No, that's super real. I I don't fit in my jeans either. And let me tell you, shopping for jeans with dysphoria, not fun. No, I can't imagine it is. No. Not a good time. Um, and also, we, we, we're going to cancel all gendered clothing because clothing shouldn't have gender. Like It's true. Everyone, regardless of their gender, can wear all kinds of different clothes. Mm-hmm. I don't... It's just a nonsense concept. So I don't know. Um, Another listener of ours wants to cancel the fairness trolling about trans women in sports. And as somebody who has written approximately 11 billion articles about this, I agree with you. mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's some bullshit. It's some bullshit. It's actually what uh, the, the first episode of, the podcast we're working on the anti-trans hate machine dives into that and we yeah. look at some of that and where it comes from and who's driving it and uh it's just all bullshit 
It's just, there's nothing there. There's no there there. It's just people being transphobic. Actually, it's just people having a lot of trans misogyny and yeah. being being terrible. If you have questions about this, you can see my article in Fox or my other article in Fox or my article in Wired or my other article in Wired. <laughs> Don't actually just cut that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you're saying is that this is some bullshit that you've had to write about a lot because a lot of people buy into this bullshit. And so then you have to keep writing articles about it and it's exhausting. The first time I wrote about trans athletes was 2000. 16 and it was the second article i had ever written as a writer you've been writing about this for a while it's pretty much my like uh, marvel villain origin story at this point (laughs) um we're also going to cancel ranking attractiveness on numeric scales because that's gross it's really disgusting Also, remember how this was like the whole founding idea that created Facebook? Oh my god, (laughs) I forgot about that until just now, and so big yikes. Like, you know the meme where somebody is pushing like a tiny domino and it goes to a big domino? And it's like uh, Mark Zuckerberg trying to invent hotornot.com. And, and then destroy the democracy. Domino, the big domino is destroying democracy. <laughs> oh, big yikes. <laughs> what a strange place to end the show. I feel like that was such a deep, heavy show. And then we're just, just fucking shitposting here at the end. <laughs> we truly lived up to our slogan, thoughtful analysis and verbal shitposting today. And if you want to submit something for out of context cancellation, you can join our Discord and become a Patreon on our show. Yes. So with just a $5 a month Patreon commitment, you can access our Discord. Um, but we also have some other great perks as well. Your support, all of your financial support helps us become a weekly show, which again is still our goal. And you can find our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Klein, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song, and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work. Especially the members of our Canceler Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all their enemies, Alice and Meg. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Happy canceling!